0: Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, verse 1. Luke chapter 24, verse 1. And I'll be reading to verse 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus, While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how we told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day? Rise. And they remembered his words. And returning to the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all of the rest.
1: Good morning and grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I know that we have some visitors here with us. We're very thankful for your presence and and we're very grateful to have you here with us and an opportunity for us to worship and serve our God together. March 11th, which just passed recently, is a day that stands in infamy for two reasons. First, it was the 10-year anniversary of the Japanese tsunamis, which occurred back in 2011, which stand as the most expensive and one of the most devastating natural disasters of modern history. In that event, over 400,000 cars were destroyed, half a million buildings were damaged destroyed, and 19,000, 19,000 people were killed in that single event. 74 of those 19,000 were elementary school children, who due to the delayed exiting of the officials there to a nearby hill, suffered a terrible death, and drowned. If you've ever read any of the stories or seen any of the images of that event, as I have, it's hard to get those stories and it's hard to get those images out of your head. The second reason that March 11th stands in infamy is because it was the one-year anniversary, marked one year, since COVID-19 was declared a pandemic in our nation. Since that time, there have been about 2.8 million deaths worldwide, a little over 500,000, give or take, within our own nation. All of them friends, neighbors, mothers, fathers, children. I just did the funeral of a good friend of mine who died from it. An immense loss of human life, suffering. As Christians, what do you do with those types of things? What do you do with tragedies like that? Do you just kind of say, well, that's very sad and I'm glad it didn't happen to me. Just kind of flip the channel and turn it to something more distracting to keep your mind off of the pain and off of the darkness or maybe, maybe you just kind of jump to the more practical side of it jump past the sorrow and simply get to the pragmatic what could have been done to prevent it what could be done in the future to prevent it politics debating back and forth what happens every time there's a mass shooting for example what do we do I think if we're honest, most of us probably wish that we had a fast-forward button, right? That we could just kind of fast-forward those tragedies, kind of skip past them and get back to where things are good. I don't know how many times I wanted to put a fast-forward button in the COVID-19 pandemic, right? To get back to normal. That's been a phrase that we've used throughout the... If we could just get back to normal, if we could just kind of use the skip button and get there, instead of seeing the images of, of the tsunami and of of the many lives that were lost, we want to see the images of the recovered Japan. We want to see the restructure. We want to see them rebuilding. We want to see them successful again. We don't want to focus too much on the other images. And we probably would like to do that in our own life as well. If we could just fast forward through the tough parts, pause it on the good moments, and only give me the highlights. Wouldn't it be a lot easier if we could do that? And the reason is, is because most of us don't do very well with grief. We don't know what to say to people who are grieving. We don't know how we're supposed to act when we're grieving. We're generally just confused by the whole thing. And we certainly don't want it to last very long. And as I thought about this, I thought maybe part of our issue as Christians... With handling grief and with handling sorrow has to do with how we view the story of redemption itself. Hear me out. Today is Easter Sunday. Many of us and many around the world are focused on the resurrection of Christ. And while we celebrate that every Sunday, it was this time of the year when it did happen. And so many are focused in on that. Many are focused in on the resurrection and the victory of our Savior over death and the hope that it offers for us as his people. And praise God for that, right? Praise God for that. But in some ways I wonder if the story of Jesus, because we've heard it so many times and we're hearing the story of Christ on this side of the resurrection, sometimes I kind of wonder if we treat it like a scary movie that we already know the ending to. Where we kind of watch it and know, well, everybody's going to survive. No reason to get too scared. Yes, he suffers, but he survives. And in doing this, we really miss the significance of the entire event. And we misunderstand our purpose as God's people in dealing with sorrow, in dealing with grief in the present world and in the present moment. And we just want to skip to the empty tomb and run quickly past the garden and the cross. But you can't run past Gethsemane. You can't skip the garden just to get to the tomb. Because we can't do that in our own life either. It would be nice, wouldn't it? Whenever we lose someone we love, whenever we're going through tragedy, if we could just push the skip button to the resurrection. But you can't do that. There's still suffering now. As we await. And so this morning, I want us to be opening our Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. And I want us to sit with Jesus. I want us to sit and I want us to watch Jesus in his grief. I want us to do exactly what he asked the disciples to do here, which is to sit and to watch with him in his grief. And as we do that, I want us to see our grief in him. And then we want to see how his grief and our grief is viewed within the context of the resurrection. And we've simply titled this sermon, Running Past Gethsemane. So let's open to Matthew chapter 26. And let us read together, starting in verse 36. Matthew 26 and verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then they came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. As we read this text together, I, I want us to do three things. I want us to first stop at the garden, I want us to reflect for a moment on what's going on here. And after we have stopped at the garden, I want us to see the man of sorrows. I want to see what what we learn from Jesus in this and what we learn about ourselves in this. And number three, I want us to stand before the tomb. So let's first stop at the garden. Actually, before we stop at the garden, let's take a quick pit stop at the tomb, at the graveside of another man by the name of Lazarus. Because in John chapter 11, something happens that's very connected and, and very close to what happens here in Gethsemane. In John chapter 11, we find the shortest and possibly one of the more confusing verses in the New Testament to many people. The verse simply says this Jesus wept, not cried. Not shed a few tears, Jesus wept. Here's a question, if you know the story. Why did he cry? Why is he crying? I mean, Jesus knows he's going to resurrect him. That's the whole reason that he didn't go immediately. He allowed him to pass. He allowed him to die because he knew he was going to resurrect him. So Jesus knows he's going to resurrect him, and yet he cries. Why is he, as one author says, shaking with sobs at the grave of his friend? Sometimes we kind of say, well, he knew he was bringing Lazarus back, and he didn't want to bring him back from that. That's not what the text says. That's completely extra-biblical. There's no evidence for that. Why is he crying? Why is he weeping? We're told why in verses 33 and 34. When Jesus saw her, that is Mary, weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit, and he was greatly troubled. And he says, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Jesus wept because people that he loved were hurting. He wept because he had lost a friend. He wept because death was still death, even though Lazarus would live again. It didn't undo the pain. It didn't undo the loss of the moment. It didn't eliminate the suffering that Lazarus went through Before he died, it didn't eliminate the grief that Mary and Martha were experiencing. And that was real. The echo of future glory did not eliminate the pain in the present. There is still suffering in the land between now and the resurrection. And Jesus weeps over it. And in the same way with the story of Jesus, we sometimes forget that there was a garden filled with tears before there was a victorious empty tomb. And we view that garden in the context of the tomb without really understanding the garden first. And so I want us to imagine for a moment what it would have been like to sit with Jesus in his grief in the garden... Before we knew that there was going to be a resurrection, the disciples didn't know about the resurrection. Jesus had tried to tell them, but they didn't understand. They didn't comprehend it. That's why they're so confused. That verse there at the end in Luke chapter 24, when Peter's like, what is going on? So let's try to see what it would have been like to sit with Jesus in Matthew chapter 26 as he wept, as he goes through grief. First, I imagine there would probably be a little bit of confusion on our part. Why is Jesus being so somber? I mean, he said some weird comments about Judas at the Passover feast, but that was kind of confusing. I don't understand why that would have ruined the night. And why, why, why is he praying so fervently, we might think? I mean, we've seen him pray before. He's prayed in front of us. He's prayed with us. But we've never seen him pray like this before. With so much with so much desperation. In fact, he's not just crying, he's yelling. He's crying out. According to Hebrews 5 and verse 7, with loud loud Cries and with loud tears. And maybe the more unsettling thing is that he is crying. The only other time that you've seen him like this was at Lazarus's tomb, but even now it's different. And he's drenched in sweat. In fact, he's so drenched in sweat that you thought he was bleeding at one point. Luke chapter 22 and verse 44. And if you're being honest, this is making you feel a little bit awkward. A little bit confused. Why is this man that you love and respect so much, the son of God no less, acting like this? It's almost, and you hate to say it, but it's almost embarrassing. You're glad, thankfully, he's in such a private place. No one can see him like this. But he does seem so alone. So very alone. And then we begin to worry, maybe, because it seems like he's in pain. Or at the very least, extremely depressed. In fact, he comes to us and tells us that he is so sad that he might die from the grief. Matthew 26 and verse 38 he appears to be greatly distressed and troubled according to mark 14 and verse 33 and in fact the word we would probably use to describe him is agony according to luke chapter 22 and verse 44 it's like it's like he is enduring psychological torture As his sorrow manifests itself in immense pain, and you feel helpless, what can you do to help him? He asked you to watch and pray, but what else can you do? It doesn't seem like much. What's even more alarming is that it almost sounds like he is going through a crisis of faith. We hear him say, Father, if you are willing, stop this from happening. And then a little bit more forceful, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. For you. Remove this cup from me. Mark chapter 14 and verse 36. And you wonder, if God is willing and he is able, then why doesn't he? Is he willing? Is he able? And if he is, then why doesn't he stop it? Now, at this moment, you don't know it, but just in a few hours, you're going to hear him cry out one of the most startling statements that you've ever heard him say. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this, you think, must be what the prophet Isaiah meant, When he called him a man of sorrows in Isaiah chapter 53 in verse 3. But then then you hear him say something. Then you hear him say, not my will, but yours. Be done. And then he stands back and he comes towards you. And there seems to be this calm resignation about him. The hour has come, he says. ...for the Son of Man to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. Betrayed? Betrayed? Your heart breaks for him. Because after seeing what he's going through... ...you can't imagine a close friend betraying him in his hour of need. And yet that is exactly what is about to happen. And the garden is slowly illuminated... By torches and soldiers. And there's a man in the front of the soldiers, and he looks somewhat familiar, but you can't quite make him out because of the shadows over his face. And then it's Judas. And so they take your friend away, the one you've come to know as the Messiah, with teardrops still staining his cheeks, to a place far more ominous sounding than Gethsemane, Golgotha. Stopping at the garden and seeing. But what, what is happening here though? We, we, we're stopping here, we're reflecting on his grief. But I also want us to see something. I want us to see Jesus, see him for what's going on here. What do we witness here in the man of sorrows? What are we witnessing? Well, first off, I think what we see is the perspective of a person who is grieving and the perspective of someone who is trying to offer comfort. Grief for the victim is isolating, it's anxiety-ridden, it's torturous, it's desperate, and it's confused. Grief for the observer... For the one who's trying to offer comfort is confusing as well. But in a different way, it creates a sense of helplessness and at times embarrassment. Like we're looking at something that we're not supposed to be seeing. We're witnessing something that we shouldn't be seeing. And still, despite all of this, grief longs for companionship. It was Jesus, in fact, who asked his close friends to watch and to sit with him. He doesn't ask all of the twelve. He just asked a few. And in many ways, this sums up our responsibility to others in grief. To support them, to be present with them, to pray with them, to share in their grief. Romans 12 and verse 15, to weep with those who weep. To share in that. To associate with that. Russell, there's blinking going on behind me. Can you turn that off, please? To share in that grief. To weep with those who weep. And this too, now listen to me. This too is our primary, not our only, but our primary responsibility as the church to the world who is suffering through tragedy. To watch for moments to help and to support. To sit in silence over loss. To pray for comfort, resolution, justice, and aid. To sit and to watch with the world in their sorrow. Because if we fast forward to the ending, if we try and skip over the tragedy without getting through and sitting through the tough stuff, just get to the practical, just get to the pragmatic, to debate the politics, when we run past their Gethsemane, their moment of trial, we are no better than the apostles who couldn't for a few moments watch and pray. And in this, we miss opportunities to serve and to love and to share and to hope as people are going through moments like this. And if we've run past the Gethsemanes that people go through, we're going to find it a lot more difficult to show them the empty tomb. And I wonder just for me personally how many opportunities I missed over this past year to sit with people in their grief, to sit with the world in their sorrow because I was too busy debating politics, I was too busy trying to be pragmatic, and I was too focused on getting back to normal. And I just acted like that other stuff wasn't happening. But within this we also see something else. We see an even greater reason to praise our Savior. Because within his sorrow and within his grief, Jesus is experiencing the full spectrum of what it means to be human. He is in sorrow. He is in agony. He is hurting. And the hope of the resurrection, yes, it's there, but it's not eliminating the pain in the present. It does affect it. We're going to talk about that in a moment, but it doesn't eliminate that. Just as our hope we hope for the resurrection, we look forward to the resurrection. But it doesn't eliminate my grief in the present moment. It's still there, It's still hurting. And what we see within Jesus is that we follow a God and we follow a Creator who isn't simply aware of our loss, but shares in it, who doesn't simply watch our sorrow but participates in our sorrow. Just as he did at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus is heartbroken over our present loss in this present world. He doesn't dismiss it and say, well, they'll get over it. I'm going to resurrect them anyways. They'll get over it. It'll be okay in the end. We serve a God who weeps with us at the graveside. Whose heart aches when our heart breaks. So let us now, as we stop to the garden and see the man of sorrows, let's not forget to stand before the tomb. Because we understand that as Christians, our grief isn't like the grief of the world. It's not just like that. It's not just hopeless. It's not full of despair. There's heartache. There's agony here. But there is hope. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13, we grieve, yes we grieve, but not as those who don't have hope. Jesus, for example, faces his sorrow with an immense confidence in the will of God. He agonizes, he is in pain, but then he says, not my will, but yours. And that seems like a very funny thing to say when you're hurting. Until you're hurting. And it's about the only thing that brings comfort. This is the language of faith. One which trusts in a greater purpose... A greater will. A greater will to bring about inevitable good. A resolve to trust in the midst of tragedy. And once Jesus faces Golgotha, the Hebrews writer informs us that he looked past the pain. He looked past the grief of the moment. And he looked at the joy that was set before him, Hebrews 12 and verse 2. That's what enabled him to endure. That's what enabled him to get through it. To endure. That resurrection did bring context to his grief. It offered, it didn't eliminate the pain, but it did offer a solution. It offered a resolution. It offered restoration. It echoed back. The resurrection echoes back into our present moment, into our present pain. And it gives us hope. The only hope. There is a joy that is set before the face of every Christian that is going through trial and that is going through suffering. That God will with Christ give us all things. Romans 8 and verse 32. That he will bring us into a new place where there is no suffering, where there is no tears, where there's no pain anymore. Revelation 21 and verse 4. A new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And I guess this is what I'm trying to say because this is why it is so important That we don't run past Gethsemane because within the story of redemption within the world and within our own lives there is real pain now and to act like that's not real or to dismiss it or to not recognize it that's not Christian that's not biblical Because it's only when we truly witness and realize and sit with the sorrow that we can see the glory and the grandeur of the resurrection. It's only when we recognize that pain, that we can recognize the victory of the empty tomb. For if grief is so great, then how much more our glory? Or as Paul would say in Romans 8 and verse 18, For I consider their sufferings at this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us." Don't run past Gethsemane. Stop at the tomb. Stop at the garden. See the man of sorrow. Stand before the tomb. As many of you know, I'm fans of the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis, many of his writings. One of my favorite scenes is in The Magician's Nephew, and I've mentioned this scene before, but it's become of, of greater significance to me in some of the trials that we've recently go, gone through. And in The Magician's Nephew, there's a, a young man named Diggory, and his mother is, is suffering, she's, and, and, and she's essentially dying. And uh, this young man finds himself in the land of Narnia, a place he didn't intend to be, and he just wants to get back to his mom to be with her, to help her, to heal her. And he encounters the great lion, Aslan, who is, if you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, as representative of Christ. And he's crying out, and he's, and he's weeping, and he's, he's crying into the mane of the great lion. And then it says this. Up until then, he had been looking at the lion's great front feet and the huge claws on them. And now in his despair, he looked up at his face. And what he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down, near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. And they were such big bright tears compared with Diggory's own, that for a moment, he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. My son, my son, said Aslan, I know that grief is great. Only you and I in this land know that yet. Let us be good to one another. What we learn from Gethsemane is this. That when grief is great, rather than try to explain it To ignore it or to dismiss it, we just need to sit and watch and be good to one another. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, the great King of kings and the Lord of lords, Lion of the tribe of Judah. We cry out to you as your people in this present land and in this present world knowing that there is suffering and grief and sorrow and loss that sometimes is just so unbearable that we don't know what to say or what to do and how much we would like to fast forward it Skip through it. And yet we suffer now as your son suffered in the garden. But we also know, Lord, that our grief is not lost. It's not without hope because of what you did in your son, what you did within the resurrection. And Lord, we place our trust in that hope even when the world seems At a loss, even when we're confused, even when we're hurting, even when we're in agony, even when the darkness of the garden surrounds us, we trust in you. And in the resurrection and the victory over death, for where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. You have offered us the word of life in your Son. And into your hands we commit our spirits. And into your hands we commit our sorrows. And into your hands we commit our grief. So that one day we will share in the glory of the resurrection. And that the old things will have passed away. So that all things can become new. It's in your son's name that we pray. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Amen. Would you please come as we stand and as we sing.